2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, well, the spring and the summer is coming, and for me, that can be a little bit terrifying because that means people swim a lot. And I have little boys that want to swim a lot, and it's always challenging for me because I don't consider myself a great swimmer. Uh, part of that is because I grew up in the 80s where Jaws movies were really popular then, and I swore that any large amount of water, Jaws was in it. I just had this big fear that Jaws was going to eat me. Uh, the second reason why, and more on a serious note, uh, when I was about three years old, I actually almost drowned. I was uh, visiting my aunt in Florida with my family, and uh, here I was walking along the edge of the pool playing with Star Wars action figures, and I dropped Luke Skywalker in the deep end, uh, right off the edge, and I tried to reach down for him, and as he continued to go, I continued to reach and reach and reach, and then I just flipped over and fell right in. Well, my family is just as ADD as I am, so they didn't notice that here's little Ben at the bottom of the pool. Uh, fortunately, my mom did give me some, uh, some swimming lessons at, at a young age, so I was able to hold my breath and sort of doggy paddle at the bottom. And thankfully, we had with us uh, a family friend named Chrissy. She was my sister's best friend in high school, and she was there with us at our aunt's house. And so here I was at the bottom of the pool, and Chrissy happened to be a lifeguard. And Chrissy jumps in the water, swims down to the bottom, lifts me up out of the water, and then she did the whole thing where, you know, all the CPR stuff, and I spit up the water, and then I'm breathing again, and everybody's like, oh, thank God, he's alive, right? And I remember that story so well, and I remember Chrissy based on what she did for me. And if I were to describe Chrissy to you and say, here's our family friend, Chrissy, she's a really good swimmer. That would not carry the weight of what she did for me that day. But say, here's our our family friend, Chrissy. She's a really good rescuer. She's a really good lifeguard. It still wouldn't carry the weight of what Chrissy did for me that day. But if I said, here's our family friend, Chrissy. Let me tell you this story. Chrissy actually saved me from drowning. All of a sudden, you're interested. All of a sudden, you listen differently. You look at her differently. And it's the same thing, I believe, with what often people say about Jesus. There's a lot of different things that we can say about Jesus. We could say he was a good rabbi. He was a good teacher. Uh, he, was, he performed miracles. He walked on water. He raised the dead. We can say all those things about Jesus, but none of those things really carry the weight of what Jesus actually did Other than the the greatest uh, story that tells the weight of what Christ did was the fact that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave. That captures who Jesus is more than anything else that we could say about Jesus. And so Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, in his letter to this church, he writes so that they would understand this truth. He writes so that they would base their lives and their identity and their mission and their purpose on this truth. In fact, I'll just read in 2 Corinthians 5. I'll start in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Then he says, And he died for all that those who might 
uh, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was, what's the word? Raised. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, we see God's love displayed. And that truth should shape then how we live our lives. That truth should repurpose our lives. And this is what Paul then explains. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to kind of camp out on verse 21. Because if we understand verse 21, we'll understand verses 16 through 20. So let me just read all of them for you just now. So he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. That's good news, right? And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him. Now, now pay attention to this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, 16, verses 16 through 20, won't carry the way unless we understand what verse 21 means. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Simply put, it means that Jesus took our place. A theological term for this, this is the doctrine of substitution. I hear this question a lot. Why did Jesus have to die in order to forgive us? I mean, if God is all powerful, couldn't he have just forgiven us without someone having to die? The answer is no. Someone did have to die. Someone had to die because this fits the character of God. Sin always has a consequence. Parents, hopefully you've taught your kids this by now, that sin has a consequence. If you have not taught your kids this, no one here wants to babysit your kids. I don't care how much money you give them. I don't care how much pizza you leave for them. They don't want to babysit your kids because... Sin has a consequence. When we break the law, there's a consequence. We live in a world where there are laws. We speed, we get a ticket. We rob, we get thrown in jail. We listen to Florida Georgia Line, we get made fun of. That's just how the world works. That's how the world should work. Amen? God cannot be just without a payment for sin. It would completely go against his character. Now, the problem with that is we are all guilty of sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God God in the Garden of Eden. They were the very first people who ever lived on the earth. And Scripture uh, represents Adam as uh, the human race. 
And because Adam sinned, all have sinned. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, verse 18. He says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men and women, so one act's righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. See what Paul says here? He says, all of the human race is found guilty because of Adam's sin. And you might be up here thinking, okay, that doesn't seem fair. The problem is none of us can actually say honestly that we've never sinned. I've been in ministry for about 17 years, and I've actually only met one person say they have never sinned. I was on a missions trip in a rural part of New Hampshire, and I remember going door to door and knocking on the door, and we were trying to help a church plant there in New Hampshire. And, and, and it's odd, I, I, think, I think back now, I'm 38 years old, like I was 18 then, knocking on the door, and somebody answers the door, and the first thing you ask them, you introduce yourself, and then you ask them, what do you think happens when you die, which is a weird way to start a conversation if you're knocking on someone's door as I think about it. And then, okay, then they ask, okay, I, you know, maybe you go to heaven or you know, maybe you just die and you just turn to dust. And so that would just lead to other conversations. Then we ask the, 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 the standard question, okay, um, do you think you are a good person? Which is also a trick question, okay? Because then they say, yes. Well, do you want to know what the Bible says about that? And then you begin to get into that whole discussion. Okay, have you ever lied? Have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you ever had a greed, you know, have you ever had greed in your life? Have you ever had malice in your life? And most of the time, you get someone by question one or two somewhere in there. But this one guy, I'll never forget, he said he's never sinned. He said no to every single question. I've never lied. I've never had a lustful thought. And we're just sitting there. And then as we talk to him more we learned that this dude has been married three times. And I'm like sitting there, I'm 18 years old, I want to say, dude, no wonder none of these marriages work. You're always right. And the first rule of being a man is that you're always wrong. So he missed the point. And so here's this guy who thinks he's perfect, but the Bible says none of us are. We sin because we're sinners. You were a sinner at birth. And not only that, you're a sinner because you sin. You sin willingly. You sin because you want to. And because of that, there's a consequence for sin. What does the Bible say the consequence of sin is? The consequence of sin is death. There are two types of death in Scripture. One is physical death and the other is spiritual death. Physical death is the result of of sin. It means our bodies don't last forever. We have aches and we have pains. Yesterday, we uh, had a barbecue here to sort of continue to celebrate through Easter weekend and I'm I played with a bunch of 20-year-olds in basketball. And I feel the aches and pains. I feel that my body will not last forever. I have the sun beating down on my neck, and my neck is burned. I have a red neck. I'm burning because my body does not last forever. Some of you are just feeling the aches and pain of just eating barbecue. And that means your body will not last forever. And if you continue to eat barbecue, your body really won't last forever, but it's all worth it right? It's all worth it. That's why we do it. But physical death is one of the results of the fall, but also spiritual death. Spiritual death is what happens when we die. Spiritual death is the final penalty of sin, which is eternal torment separated from the blessings of God. Physical death will inevitably happen, but God promises a redemption for 
spiritual death. And what is that redemption? Paul says it this way in Romans 3. He says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his gift as a grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Paul here tells us how he saves us from eternal death. He says a word that, was act, that we actually talked about on our Good Friday service two days ago. He uses the word propitiation. And this word basically means that the wrath of God, God's anger, God's hatred towards sin has been satisfied. In other words, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, this is what he did. He absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed our sin. He absorbed the penalty of our sin. Just as we read in Romans 5, he said, through one man's obedience, the many were made righteousness. So through one man's obedience, there's, there's sin that we are born with the curse of, but, but, curse of, but through one man's obedience, we're made righteous. Through Christ's obedience to going to death on the cross, we can be in good standing with God. And Paul is saying that through Adam's sin, we're all found guilty. But through Jesus' blood, we're found innocent. So God is both the just and the justifier. God does not simply disregard our sins. Rather, he punishes Jesus for our sins. That's the gospel. Jesus took our place. On Good Friday, we we talked about the horrifying death that the cross was. There was actually a word to describe how heinous this death was, and it was the word excruciating. The word excruciating was made up to describe death on a cross. And the word excruciating actually means from the cross, And so you have the agony of Jesus. You have the pain of Jesus. You have the sacrifice of Jesus, the physical pain, the agony that he went through on our behalf. But listen, that's not the worst thing about the cross. The worst thing about the cross for Jesus was when he absorbed the wrath of God, when he took on all of our sins and died in our place. This is why uh, when we see the weightiness of the cross is when Jesus looks to the Father and he says, why have you forsaken me? He says that because he experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. And this is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He did not carry the line of the curse that we do born of Adam. Jesus was born of a virgin. So Jesus lived this perfect life. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, went to the cross willingly to die in our place. But guess what? Dying in our place actually wasn't enough. The resurrection has to happen. Because the resurrection proves that sin did not prevail. The penalty of sin, which is death, could not defeat our Lord. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, when he talks to the exact same church, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus' resurrection shows what Jesus Christ did on the cross was enough so that we can have confidence that he who made, he made him to be sin who knew no sin was enough to save us. But here's what I don't want us to miss. Because not only did Jesus save us on the cross, but Paul says something else happens. He says, for our sake, he made him uh, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what else happens? Not only are we promised to have our sins forgiven, but we now receive righteousness from God. In other words, we're made new. In other words, we get a new life. We're no longer marked or defined by our sin. We're no longer slaves to our sin. We actually get a new life. Great reformer in church history, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, calls this idea the great exchange, which is my sin goes to Jesus, and in exchange, Jesus' righteousness comes to me. The gospel could literally be summed up in two words, became and become. Jesus becomes sin for us so that we would become, or Jesus became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Paul uses one phrase to describe this, made new, which is the entire book of 2 Corinthians. And so let let me just show you now the implications of, of what it means to be made new. So that's verse 21. Let me explain now the implications of verses 16 through 20. Number one, God does not save classes of people. God does not save classes of people. Verse 16, he says, From now on, on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's good news. There's this mindset I think we often have. There's this type of person that God can save. But Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. To the Corinthian church, this is a huge issue because the Corinthian church actually tried to create classes of people. If you were a rich person, you could come and take of the Lord's Supper first. But if you were a poor person, you had to wait in another room. But what Paul's saying, no, no, no. The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. And we live in a country today, right now, our country is plagued with issues of racism, of sexism, and of hate. And our country over and over and over again tries to fix the problem without the gospel. And the only answer to those problems is the gospel. Because the gospel says that we are all sons and daughters. The gospel says that that everyone can come to the table and join in the sacrifice of Christ and enjoy Christ and enjoy God forever. There's no classes of people. There's no skin color that is acceptable or non-acceptable for the gospel. There's no, um, there's no amount of money that you can do to buy your way in or buy your way out. There's none, there's none of those class systems that we see. God doesn't save a class of people. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, Paul says, For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. That's good news. 
God doesn't save us based on a class of people that we're a part of. Not only that, but part of being made new is you have a changed life. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Paul says here that the changed life is evidence that you are a believer. The changed life is evidence that you believe that Jesus Christ physically rose from the grave. The way that Jesus describes this to uh, the disciples, we won't go there, but in Matthew 7, he tells the disciples, you will know that your disciples will recognize them by their fruits. Fruit is evidence that Jesus Christ is in you. I meet a lot of people in eastern North Carolina who have a testimony much like our, our brother who just got baptized, Clint. And the testimony goes like this. I prayed a prayer when I was young. I walked an aisle, I went to church. I always grew up in church. But it wasn't until later in life, later in high school, maybe in college, maybe even in their 30s, where all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they have this passion to read the Bible. All of a sudden, they have this brokenness over other people who don't have a relationship with Christ. All of a sudden, they're like fighting their sin and they hate their sin and they want to improve their life. They want to embrace Christ. They want to embrace truth. They want to be in community with other believers. All of a sudden, this came from nowhere. Guess what I would say to that person? You didn't become a believer when you were a kid. You became a believer later on in life. How do we know that? It's because evidence shows that this person's a believer. This person is showing that they're made new. And being made new means it's just evidence that we believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. We believe in this truth of the gospel that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient when Jesus died in my place. When you began to live that out is when you became a believer. Evidence of a changed life is what happens when you're made new. And this morning, if you were here out of tradition, because that's what you do on Easter Sunday, you come, and maybe you're basing your entire eternity on a confession that you made when you were younger, even though you've seen no life change. Let me just tell you this because I love you. But if that's you and there's no life change and you're just trusting in this sort of historical Jesus but not a relationship with Jesus, Scripture doesn't give you any confidence that you really are a believer. The confidence that we have in Christ comes from evidence of a changed life. Paul says the old has passed away. In other words, you are not the same the gospel's all about making dead people alive. It's not about making good people better. It's about making dead people alive. And that's only possible through the knowing the risen Lord. And so how do you know if you're a new person? Well, Paul continues. He says it in verse 19 through 20, he says, uh, this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
We are given this ministry of reconciliation. That's what it really means to be a believer. We've been reconciled to God. And we talked about this. We went through the book of Philemon several months ago. And we talked about how forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Reconciliation, you have to bring something to the table. For both parties have to bring something to the table in order for a relationship to be reconciled. But with Christ, the only thing we brought to the table was our sin. And what Christ brought to the table was his righteousness. But what he did is he took our sin and he exchanged it for his righteousness. That's the only way that we're reconciled to God. And so this reconciliation, when it happens, when we are made new, he says he no longer holds our sin against us. And this, I, this is the idea of what it means to forgive and forget. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Like when God forgives you, he forgives and he forgets. And I always struggle with that. Like as a younger kid, like when I was a new believer, I was trying to wrap my mind around this un- understanding of like, okay, does he like really forget? Like, isn't God all knowing? Like if I, can, if I sin today and I confess today, like he just doesn't have a memory of it. But I thought he knew everything. So how does that work? How does he forget things? Like, isn't he no longer God if he forgets things? Because I remembered, so does that make me more knowledgeable than God? Well, no. When he says forget, he means he doesn't hold it against you. It's not like God has this sort of amnesia where he can't remember things anymore. No, he forgets, meaning he doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't charge you for your act. Why? Because he exchanged your sin for his righteousness by dying on the cross. For centuries, for centuries, the world has tried to fix the problem of sin. Religions try to work to appease God in a way that would make him look past our sin, but it never works. Our sin is too great. However, the good news is this. The center of Christianity is not about what we do for God, but rather what God has done for us. A believer is a person who realizes that God doesn't hold their sin against them. And when I'm sharing the gospel with someone and they're trying to, trying to figure out, am I a believer? Do I know? Or not? And I'll ask the question, when did you realize that what Christ did on the cross applied to you? Because when you realize that, you're realizing he doesn't hold my sin against me. So not only does God no longer holds our sin against us, but he also, he gives us a new purpose. Verses 18 through 20, he talks about this idea that not only are we reconciled, but we get to also carry out the ministry of reconciliation. We get to tell others of this wonderful truth that Jesus has risen from the grave. He uses this word. He says, we are an ambassador. We're representatives. In other words, you and I, for believers in Christ, we've been sent on a mission by the king to speak on his behalf. We've been called to represent the king of kings and the Lord of lords. One of the most amazing things about Christianity to me is that it continues really holistically. I mean, I could stand up here today 
and try to philosophically give you reasons why you should believe in Christianity. I could tell you that the Bible was written over 1,500 year period of time. I could tell you it was written in three different uh, languages, over three different countries, 40 different authors, 66 different books, Old and New Testament. And I can tell you how all of these sort of align and they, they sort of bring back to one key figure, Jesus Christ. I could tell you how over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the New. And we can show you the historical accuracy of some of these events that took place in the old and the new. And I could, I could stand up here and try to tell you how many original copies that we have of the Bible. And it's more original copies than any other um, ancient literature. And I could do that all day long. But listen, I think the greatest apologetic for Christianity is that so many for centuries after centuries after centuries believe in the risen Christ and it actually proved that, they, that their lives were transformed by this truth. Over and over and over again, holistically, this has happened. From the very first disciples who saw Jesus' risen body, that continued throughout the history of the church and the book of Acts, and that continued for centuries and centuries after, and today we come together and we worship him because he's risen from the grave. That just blows my mind. Because it's been proven over and over and over again to change people's lives. And so that's why we're ambassadors. Because we believe this truth. That's why we represent this king. That's why we represent the risen Lord. We go around and we tell this wonderful truth of the gospel. That's now our purpose in life. Because we believe this truth. And so this is what it means to be made new. We realize our sins are not held against us. We realize we have this new purpose to go and share the gospel. And so my only question this morning is, has the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed your life? Let me speak to two types of people that perhaps are here this morning. Those who feel that they aren't good enough and those who feel that they are good enough. First of all, let me talk to those who feel they are not good enough. If you are here and you believe that your sin is too great or believe that God only saves a type of person, may I pose to you that no one is worthy. But the fact that Jesus died in our place shows us that salvation is possible for us. If it was about how good or bad we are, there would be no hope because none of us are good enough. And that's why Jesus had to die. And that's why Jesus' death is sufficient. And that's why Jesus rose from the grave and conquered the penalty that you and I deserved. And one of the wonderful statements I've loved is, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And his name is Jesus. And so hopefully this morning, if you're sitting here and you say, there's no way that God's love could reach me. There's no way that I could ever receive this relationship with my creator that I hear you talking about. And you're just sitting there thinking, well, there's just no way, there's too many sins that I've committed that God can never forgive me. Let me just tell you, that would be all of us this morning. Every single one of us. When Jesus Christ died in our place, he absorbed the wrath of God for all men and all women who come and repent and believe. Let me talk to those of you who feel that you are good enough. If you're relying on your works 
to save you. You are walking outside of the finished work of Christ. And if you're living your life and there's no evidence that you really believe in the risen Savior, let me just challenge you this morning to repent and believe. The changed life is evidence that you trust Jesus' death and resurrection and you trust that it was sufficient to save. So my challenge for all of you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, this morning I'm going to ask you just to ask the Lord to save you. Repent of your sins and surrender your life to Jesus because Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the one who died in our place and he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And so this morning, if you do know that truth and you believe that truth, may we be made new with the reality that Jesus has died and has risen from the grave. And may we then live our lives as ambassadors where we yell to the world, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Let us pray.